This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you're going to stay in with us, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis 46. And uh, if you need a Bible from one of the side shelves, there's some there. And you'll find the, uh, Genesis 46 on page 37 of those Bibles. And you'll be helped uh, to have a copy as we go through it together. We're going to look at uh, most of chapter, we're going to look at chapter 46 and some of chapter 47 together this morning. Join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising from the grave. Thank you for reconciling us to the one who made us when we were yet sinners, enemies. Nailing you to the cross, you saved us. Lord, we worship you. We lay our lives down and just pray that you would use us to your glory. We pray that you would sub- we would be submitted to your word. Lord, we pray that we would trust you as we go through suffering and difficulty and challenge and as we ask questions of life that we don't know the answer to. We pray that we would trust that you are, in fact, moving in the direction of resurrection, of coming again. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see life in that way. Death and resurrection. And we pray that you would bless us as we look to your word and we see that before us. We pray you'd be building your church by your word, by the power of your spirit, to be more and more like you and to glorify you. We ask for your help now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Shawshank Redemption, the movie, there's a point when Andy and Red are talking about, and if you don't know the movie, I'm not going to go into it too much, but just bear with me. Two prisoners talking, talking about Andy's former life. And Andy wants Red, he's Morgan Freeman's character, to get a harmonica into the prison. Because when he was a free man, he liked to play the harmonica. And, it, and he thought it would remind him of what life was like outside of those stone walls in prison. And so Red is a guy who can get things, if you know the movie, and he's asking him for a harmonica. And Red responds, what are you talking about? And Andy basically says he's trying to maintain some kind of hope. And this is what Red says. He says, hope, let me, let me tell you something, my friend. I wish I could do the Morgan Freeman voice. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You'd better get used to that idea. Now, understand we're not in a maximum security prison, and you're not probably serving consecutive life sentences without parole. But I do think we can all relate to this idea that hope can feel dangerous. Sometimes we find ourselves so wrapped up in the disappointment, the pain, and struggles of life, we settle into a pattern 
maybe without even knowing it, of hopelessness. And this isn't new. This is rooted in paganism. One author observes this. He says, every ancient civilization believed life to be circular. As they looked out at the horizon, they saw a circle. Every day, time was a circle, beginning with morning and ending with night. The moon traced a circle of light during the course of a month. The sun had an annual circle following the seasons. Every life was a circle, beginning with birth and ending with death. The circle is the symbol of paganism. By definition, then, nothing new happened or was expected to happen. So this is a circle, but it's not a very happy circle. It's a circle of despair. So empires rise and then they will fall. The best of times are followed by the worst of times. Every serious Greek play ends in tragedy. One author observes of the Greek poets, they believed there could be no permanent safety. Peace will be followed by war, prosperity, by poverty, happiness, by suffering, life, by death. Again, not a happy story. And so our modern culture has tried to deal with that in various ways. Uh, one way, we've, we've done that in, in Christianity with kind of a, a rootless optimism of basically just patting someone on the back and saying, everything's going to be okay. Be positive. We tend to remove things like the cross from our message. And then we also mix in a little bit of Disney's theology of happy endings. Think about the Lion King and the circle of life. Lion eats the antelope, antelope or the lion dies, becomes grass, antelope eats the grass, you know, you know, okay, you've seen the movie. The story of God's people is different. The Hebrew view, Hebrew view doesn't see life as a circle of hopelessness. Although the Bible does acknowledge the drudgery of life apart from God, if you want to see more about that, go read Ecclesiastes. All things are full of weariness, Ecclesiastes 1. We understand that. Uh, Paul Miller writes this. He says, often we drag ourselves out of bed in the morning. We go to work. We watch the clock until quitting time. Rush home, either to the loneliness of an empty house or to the whining of children. Eat dinner. Watch TV. Collapse back in bed only to repeat the cycle. And it's not long before you work up a good depression. The circle of life crushes us. But not with God. The Bible infuses life-giving hope in this downward and dark part of life. The prophets and the patriarchs saw not a circle, but kind of a line curving upward toward a time when God would invade and change everything. The central thesis of the Hebrew Bible is this, according to one scholar, the rebellion against the pagan worldview, which is locked into an eternal cyclical movement. So in other words, the Bible is saying we're not trapped in a circle of despair, but on a journey of hope. And I think that's what we see in our passage this morning in Genesis 46. Our journey with God has a resurrection shape. In our text, we'll see the culmination of promises made to Abraham. We'll see reconciliation, long sought after, and realism. I'll outline the passage in three scenes. If you're taking notes... Uh, scene one, we'll see God appear to Jacob finally, and he's going to sanction this departure from Canaan. So we'll call it God's call to Egypt, verses one to seven, chapter 46. 
Then scene two, we'll, we'll get a list of all those who go with Jacob and all of his family, so the descendants of Israel, verses 8 to 27. And then finally, in scene three, we'll see the reunion of, of Jacob and Joseph and the settling in Israel of Israel in the land of Goshen. So reunion and resettling. But the main point of this sermon this morning is that the shape of the Christian life is one of death and resurrection, cross and then crown. So place your hope in God and look for his resurrection power. Let's look at the first scene together. God's call to Egypt. God's call to Egypt. The last two chapters, have you been with us? Chapters 44 and 45 are the center section of this part of Genesis. Moses has been building the narrative um, of Joseph and his brothers that began in chapter 37. And it culminates in Judah's self-sacrifice, his offer to take Benjamin's place, and then Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. Now, Pharaoh has heard about the situation. He's extended an invitation for Joseph and his entire, for Joseph's entire family to come to Egypt for provision during the famine. And he's promised them the very best land and sent them wagons and provisions to bring their family home. So after hearing that Joseph is alive, it takes a while for Jacob to believe it, but he does. He agrees to come and meet him. And that means leaving the promised land. And so we, that's where we pick it up in chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. It's likely here Jacob is living in Hebron near the family tomb that Abraham purchased, if you remember. Uh, And so at that point, that's the only part of the land that Israel owns. And so from Hebron to Beersheba, it's about 25 miles west. And Beersheba is like the, the southern border of Canaan, of the promised land. And it's significant. Abraham named it in chapter 21, Beersheba. He worshiped there. Isaac made his home there. And he met with the Lord in chapter 26. And I think that's especially significant. Isaac's situation was very similar to Jacob's. In chapter 26, if you remember, there was also a famine in the land. And Isaac was also heading to Egypt. But then God said, do not go into Egypt. I want you to stay in the land of Canaan and I will provide for you. So it's natural here for Jacob, understanding the history, to to, want to come and pray for God's guidance. And I think that's possibly the nature of the sacrifices that he's offering. We don't know for sure. Asking the Lord to guide him about going down to Egypt because he's leaving the place where they're supposed to be. And Moses may be hinting at that connection as he refers to God as the God of his father, Isaac. And so just like his father and grandfather before him, Jacob meets with God at Beersheba. So look with me at verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is the the first theophany or the appearance of God in this whole section of Genesis. Chapters 37 to 50. 
And there's not going to be another one, at least that's recorded, until God meets with Moses. That's going to be 430 years, roughly, from this. So just try to think about that interaction for a moment. Fast forward your mind to that cave when there's that bush that's burning and it won't be consumed. Moses sees it and, of course, is puzzled and he goes over to it. And we read this in Exodus 3. Keep your ears perked to Genesis 46. Exodus 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Same wording here as in Genesis 46. And then later in Exodus 3, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So he identifies himself again with the fathers, the patriarchs, and we see fear at work. Then later in Exodus 3, verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. Moses doesn't want to go. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. So we have, again, a promise of God's presence in the midst of fear. God using a broken vessel to fulfill his purposes. And of course, when we think about visions of the night, we think about Abraham in Genesis 15. God coming to him in the night and encouraging him not to be afraid and reiterating his promises to him to make him a great nation with offspring as many as the stars of the sky. It was in Genesis 15, the Lord told Abraham, those offspring are going to go to a foreign land and they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. It was before it happened in Genesis 15 and God would bring them out. It was there the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed between the sacrificed animals. It was there that Abraham believed and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. I hope there's some that will believe in Christ this morning and be reckoned righteous, be saved, justified by faith. But Abraham was not perfect So in Genesis 12, guess what? There's a famine in the land. And Abraham wants to go, guess where? Egypt. And so he goes and he is afraid. This sounds familiar. He's afraid Pharaoh is going to steal his wife. So he, you know the rest of the story, pretends that she's his sister. He lies and goes down and it all goes haywire. But God shows up and kind of enacts these plagues on Pharaoh, kind of an exodus in miniature so that he'll let her go. So here the Lord is appearing to Jacob in our text, calling him by his name of weakness. He doesn't call him Israel. Jacob, Jacob, heel grabber. Don't be afraid. I am sanctioning your trip to Egypt. I want you to go. And not only do I want you to go, I will be with you. And I will bring you back home. Your son Joseph will close your eyes. This tradition of the oldest son in the family physically closing the eyes of the father when they die. That contrasts Jacob's fears, if you remember, of going down to Sheol in mourning when Joseph disappeared in chapter 37. What a comforting, encouraging promise from God. And so Jacob hears and obeys. Look at verse 5. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba 
The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. If you're a Christian here this morning, I I just want to focus your attention on one thing specifically, and it's on this call from God not to fear. I want you to just think about that with me. This call not to fear is not based on a promise that there's nothing fearful, that nothing bad will happen. God is calling them into a place that's going to be a foreign place, worshiping foreign gods, and they eventually are going to be enslaved. Jacob is about to die. So the admonition not to fear isn't rooted in a pain-free, it's always going to be good and go my way life. It's rooted in the promise of verse 4, that I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Surely Jacob was anxious about going into a foreign land, the journey, leaving Canaan, his own health, meeting Joseph. Is this even true? We all have our anxieties. We all have our fears. And as believers... We all have our promises. We have these admonitions from Jesus. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I would encourage you to battle anxiety with these promises like this. Identify what you're afraid of. Think about it. Maybe it's, it rushes on you in the morning or in, in, in some point in your day when you're thinking about it. The unknown And just let it play out to the worst case scenario. What was the worst thing that could possibly happen? Often this never happens, but this is what we assume will happen. But just play it out. And then once you're there in your mind, look around, and I think you'll see the truth remains. You have God, and God has you. Whatever that worst case scenario is, you have God still, and He has you. I think this is what Paul's doing in Romans uh, 8, 35 and following. He's kind of bringing up the worst case scenario. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation. We don't want that. That's bad. Distress. Root word of that. Stress. Persecution. Famine. Genesis 46. Nakedness. We We have nothing left. Danger. Sword. For I am sure, he says, that neither death itself, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come in the future that we don't know about, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. No powers, no height, nor depth in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, even the hairs on your head are numbered. The Lord cares about you and knows you that much. Right after Jesus says that in Luke 12, the hairs of your head are numbered. He says, fear not. Fear not. Note the specific way that God speaks to Jacob in verse 4. He says, I will go down with you and I will also bring you up. I think that's helpful for us. That sounds like resurrection. God will go down with you in your pain and your problems into Egypt, 
with the people that hurt you and he will bring you up. He is alive. We can hope in the God who works all things together for our good. And that's what the patriarchs are doing, even though they're not seeing the good. That's what the author of Hebrews points out in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who seek thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Jacob is going to go to the promised land in a coffin. It's going to be Joseph's bones that make it back to Canaan. But friends, God raises the dead. The exodus from Egypt is only a preview of something much bigger and more significant to come. So hope in the God who promises to be with you and to raise you up. Let's look at the next section here together. Number two, if you're following your notes, the descendants of Israel. The descendants of Israel. And I'm not going to read all of this section. I just want to give you a feel for its purpose in the narrative. Moses is giving us an account of Jacob's family, certainly. But I think he's also trying to get the point across that all of Israel is leaving the promised land and going to Egypt. So there's this theme of completeness kind of the whole, a whole person almost that's leaving. And I think I just get that from the way Moses uses numbers, especially the number and multiples of the number seven in these accounts, which is often representative of perfection or totality in the scriptures. And so the list that you see there in verses 8 to 27 is, is organized uh, by the, the wives of Jacob. We see that from Leah, there's 33 descendants that, that are born, and then we see about half that many from Zilpah, her, her servant, 16. And so that's kind of a pattern that you'll see from Leah, this many, and from the servant, half as many. Rachel gives Jacob 14 descendants, and her servant Bilhah gives seven. And then Moses makes these notes about uh, people like Ur and Onan that died in Canaan, uh, and then Joseph's sons that were born in Egypt. Those are all kind of in his calculations as he's thinking through these numbers, Dinah is mentioned, and she's featured there in chapter 34. So he, he sums it up there in verse 27. Chapter 46, verse 27. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Exodus and Deuteronomy record the same. And so it's this number of totality. Okay? And... Um, it's interesting that after the flood in Genesis 10, there's a, a record of, of another list of descendants, this time from Noah. And, and there, there are 70 nations represented. And again, I think that's a picture of the totality of the world at that time, the total picture of humanity on earth. And now we have another picture of that, of, of God's people entering into Egypt as a, the new humanity, almost like a new person. They are numbered at 70. Israel is like a, like a new Adam who is elsewhere referred to as God's son. And we know there's a point in Exodus where God refers to Israel that way. Exodus 4, verse 22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. So God is sending here his representative, his son, down to Egypt and promises to bring him back again. 
And God is going to make that explicit through the prophet Hosea. Maybe you're familiar with that verse. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so centuries later, the angel of the Lord appears to another man named Joseph and called him to leave the land of promise, to escape an evil king. And so Joseph takes all of his family, including his newborn son, Jesus, down to Egypt and remains there until the death of Herod. And then God brings them back to the land of Israel. And so Matthew adds there in Matthew 2, verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And so Jacob's descent here into this unclean and hostile Egypt is a foreshadowing of the son of God going not only into Egypt and coming out, but to the unclean realm of the dead and rising again. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you would say, I'm not sure, I'm really glad that you're here. I don't know what your experience is. Maybe you're, you're, you're used to being in services like this and you would call yourself fairly religious. But maybe if you were honest, you'd say, maybe there's not really a, a personal nature to my Christianity. No real life, no personal relationship. I'm so glad that you're here And I want you to think of it as God having you here to hear this message from his word. It's our privilege that you're here. And our desire is that you would know this God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that we know. And the only possible way to know that God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to redeem us from death. We've all turned away from our creator. God made us in his image and we've turned from him. We've sinned, we've rebelled against him, we've turned our back on him. Every one of us has. If we're honest with our life, we know this is true. But just like the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament, God doesn't leave us in the pigsty of our sin. He sends his precious only son, fully God and fully man, to pay the price for our rebellion. So on the cross, Jesus absorbs God's wrath. For the sins of all of his people. He takes our punishment upon himself. He swallows it up. What we deserved. He's buried and on the third day he rises out of the grave. Victorious over sin and death. And now he offers new life to us. Forgiveness of sin. Relationship with God. If we would trust him alone for our salvation. Now there can be no additions. It must be Jesus alone. Nothing we add. There's nothing in our life, our behavior that makes us worthy for that. We don't deserve it. It's only and all about Jesus. Friend, would you turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ alone? Would you call on him as Lord? Would you call on him as Savior and follow him? Would you receive the grace that he offers you? He offers you a new life, a resurrected life. And a promise of eternity with him. I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you have questions or if you came with someone else to church, I know they would like to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus with your life. Let's look together at this last scene in Genesis 46. Reunion and resettling. As we follow the story, the family has left Beersheba 
and now they're entering into Egypt. And we'll notice Judah is in the lead. The one who was responsible for the idea, if you remember, of selling Joseph into slavery in the first place, the, the responsible for the division between Joseph and his father Jacob, is now leading the way in the reunion. I just think that's instructive. That's gospel transformation on display. He's first in line. This is how the scene unfolds. Look at uh, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. It's been some 22 years of thinking that he had lost his son. Now Jacob and Joseph are finally reunited, and it's through tears and through embrace of God's restoring and resurrecting grace. Let me just encourage you never to give up on God. Don't give up on praying for a lost friend or a son or daughter or family member. Here near the end of Jacob's days, the end of his life, God does more than he could ever have asked or imagined. Jacob's bitterness and hopeless outlook on life are now transformed. And he is contented with God's grace. That phrase, let me now die since I've seen your face, is a, is a description of that. I, I, I can go now because I have this peace that I've seen your grace at work. It reminds us of the words of Simeon, the righteous man waiting on the consolation of Israel in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is brought into the temple and he looks upon him in Luke 2, 29 and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Jesus brings peace. I would, I would invite you to take Philippians 4, 7 and, and turn it into a prayer and pray it for yourself, pray it for our church, pray it for me. Pray it for those that you, you love. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Turn that into a prayer. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, the, and I think that, that it's more than just my comprehension, it's the, the, the logic that, that breeds the anxiety in my life. This is peace that even goes beyond that. It's going to guard my heart. Would it guard my heart? Would you guard my mind, my friend's mind in Christ Jesus? As they deal with all the things in their life that come. Peace with God is the source for our personal peace. It's a fruit of the Spirit and, and our peace with others. Jesus purchased it for us on the cross. It's ours. It's for us. Pray that God would bring it to us. We'd walk in it. Joseph is concerned now as he's reconciled with his father, with getting him and the family resettled and, and taken over to Pharaoh in Goshen. So we pick it up there in verse 31. Still in chapter 46. Joseph said to his brothers, 
into his father's household. I will go up, tell Pharaoh. I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers in my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Now, we're not sure why the Egyptians had such an aversion to shepherds. It could have been just the the unclean nature of of being a shepherd, being dirty and unclean, or they looked down on them for doing a kind of manual labor. We're not sure. Maybe this is one of the reasons they don't meet together or eat together, rather, earlier in the story. But God would use even this to bring Israel into this right place. Goshen is the best land agriculturally during the time that would be like an incubator for them to grow into a great nation. So pick it up there in verse chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Probably the most impressive maybe of the brothers. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So again, God's providential hand is at work bringing his people safely into the situation where they can flourish in the best part of the land, where there are promises made from Ab- by Abraham. Those promises made to Abraham are going to come to pass. We never expected Israel to become a great nation in, in, in Egypt. But that's what happens. God's promises are not bound by geography. He's not a territorial Deity. He's not predictable. It's a good truth to be reminded of. His people are going to flourish and grow as a distinct people in a, in a pagan Egypt. And certainly there are connections there to our own lives here and now. Living as sojourners on the earth, distinct from the world, in order to bless the world by representing Jesus. And that's what we see in this last section. Israel blessing the nations. Pick it up there in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession of the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's house with food according to the number of their dependents. Just think about Jacob's assessment of his life there. Few and evil have the days of my life, the years of my life been. 
Long life was seen as a, as a sign of divine blessing, particularly in, in Egypt. And Jacob is 130. So, and he's not done. He's still alive. But he's honest about his life. Compared to Abraham, Abraham lived to be 175. Compared to Isaac, Isaac lived to be 180. He now sees his years comparatively as few. And the years that he did have were hard. He had to run away from his brother who wanted to kill him. He was tricked into serving Laban for 20 years. His daughter Dinah was raped. Rachel, his beloved wife, died. His oldest son, on a power play, committed incest. His, his favorite son's uh, disappearance and apparent death. Not to mention his own sin and his own unbelief. We've seen the consistence of his favoritism and other things in his life. Yet through it all, he could still bless Pharaoh. He could still fulfill God's purpose and be the, the carrier of the seed of promise to the next generation. In many ways, we could just say Jacob was a scoundrel. And God would so identify with Jacob, he would attach his name to himself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was with him. God loved him. Despite all the hard and unknown things in his life, he had God and God had him. Friends, I just think this is an application for us. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat life. It's honest with us about it being hard, about following Jesus being hard. Suffering often being the seminary where we, we learn about God the most. But life is not a pagan circle of hopelessness. There is resurrection coming. Paul described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6, 10. I wonder if you understand that as a reality. Sorrowful, yet deeply rooted in the joy that comes from Christ alone. That's, that's where Jacob is, and I pray that's where we would be. It's the shape of the gospel. This shabby, worn-out shepherd stands before Pharaoh and blesses him in the name of the God of the universe. Joseph has risen from the pit. Judah has had his eyes open to the nature of love. God is providing continually and preserving his promises. Even in the baptism we saw this morning, we see the shape of death and resurrection, cross and crown. No story is more powerful than the gospel story. Uh, one author commented that when the movie Troy came out, remember the movie Troy? Brad Pitt, he said, this is going to be a flop. It's not a gospel story. It's a tragedy. And apparently it didn't do that well at the box office. But then he said, when you compare that to say, Les Mis, whether it's on Broadway or public television or on the big screen, it's a hit. Just interesting. Data point. It's a gospel story. Our hearts are made for gospel stories because those are our stories. What we see here, Israel is going down to Egypt, but we have a promise that they will come back. God will bring them up. And that's our story. 
I pray that when you look at life, you would, you would see it that way. We can't always determine when and what God is doing. We can't always see the end goal. In some ways, we may feel like the, the patriarchs who are looking, but we can know that God is alive and he has shaped our lives this way. We can have hope. Even when we're sorrowful, we can always be rejoicing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray that it would shape us. Lord, we pray that we would find hope in your word and that it would mold the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we encourage one another. Lord, we thank you for the new life that comes in Christ, the abundant life that comes in walking with him, with you. Lord, we pray that you would give us peace that surpasses understanding. It would guard our hearts and our minds according to Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.